Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're continuing in our series called Messy Church. Uh, it's a church about the, uh, excuse me, it's a church, it's a church about the heart. <laughs> it's a series about the heart. Hoping for a church about the heart to follow out of that work of the Holy Spirit. This really comes from a passage uh, that Jesus tells us is the most important thing. That is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart in addition to all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your, uh, your soul. But we're honing in on that one piece, the heart. This is a, a series largely about living fully out of the heart and specifically honing in on an element of the heart that is the emotions. And this is really just a, an eight, nine-week series on emotional health and spiritual health as we see it portrayed in the scriptures. And for those of you that are just joining with us, just a quick recap of where we've been. You know, the first week we, we spoke about the importance, kind of the why behind all of this. Why should we be uh, healthy in heart and in soul? And uh, what, is, what is the significance of that? What does it look like? Uh, why should we do it? What are, what are the, uh, the problems that come with, with neglecting the heart? And then every week after that, we've just been hitting uh, places in the scriptures that speak to the how of being uh, emotionally and spiritually healthy. So the, the, the second week, we looked at the topic of self-awareness, knowing ourselves that we might know God more deeply. We looked at uh, that and how we are to listen to uh, the things inside of our hearts, specifically the, the emotions and the feelings and how even though those things aren't always necessarily right and we don't always manage them right, they are nonetheless true. And God uses them uh, to speak to us in uh, profound ways. And although we are not to be controlled by our emotions, we certainly must pay attention to them for God made us to be emotional creatures. After that, we looked at uh, another type of self-awareness in that third week, not that we are to be aware of ourselves in the present moment, but that we have been deeply shaped by our past. And so we took a journey into the past, especially uh, into our family of origins. How does our past, how how do our family scripts shape who we are today so that we can be free from the things that are not of the Lord and we can embrace those things that we learned along the way that are of the Lord. And then after that, we looked at the journey through the wall. What happens when we don't feel God with our emotions or any of the five senses, when it seems like he's not there uh, and what God is doing in the midst of that. After that, we looked at uh, an important topic, you know, when a to be able to grow in self-awareness and to strip those family scripts that are not of the Lord and to journey through the wall all uh, requires the space in order to do that with God. And so we looked at things like busyness and margin and studied what the Bible, specifically Jesus' life, speaks about uh, the gift of limits and how we are to embrace the limitations that God ordains for us so that we can be with him. Um, and next week, we're going to turn a corner. This, up until this point, we've been looking at uh, some of these emotional types of issues. I, I, I re- don't want to, I refrain from bifurcating between the emotional and the spiritual because they're so intertwined. But, you know, those types of, of topics, we're looking at the heart and self-awareness and family scripts, all of that stuff. 
But the, the point of emotional health is not emotional health. That is not the end goal. Emotional health for its own sake. Nor is, it, uh, nor is the end goal to advance in your career. Nor is the end goal of the healing of the heart just to uh, have better relationships. Although you may find that all three of those things will happen or may happen as your heart is healed in the presence of God. But those are not the end goal. The end goal of emotional health is to experience God's presence more. It is more of Jesus. It is to be able to slow down and be with him. So we're going to turn a corner next week and talk about that part. We have, up until this point, been looking at what the Bible says about opening the heart, his work to open the heart, but now what do you do once the heart is open? Well, now we slow down to be with God, and we're going to be speaking about that for the last half of the series. But before we do that, one more issue of the heart. As God is expanding and and hopefully opening up the capacity of our hearts to, to heal and to receive and to be with him and to be with others. Uh, there's just one element of that that we cannot, we cannot avoid. It is one of the hardest, also one of the most powerful. Um, that is what we do with grief and loss. For that, I want to read to you from a, a couple verses in Ecclesiastes, uh, verse 1. And verse 4, if, you, uh, if you're still turning there, it's after Proverbs. Um, and this book was really written, if you've read through this book and you've been confused because it's not quite as happy as the other books that you read in the Bible, uh, there's a reason for that, you know. This is a, a piece of wisdom literature in which the author is, is writing and he's just getting very real and he's, he's asking certain questions in the presence of God, specifically about the futility of life. What happens when life isn't as beautiful as you thought it was going to be? What happens when there's no point? What happens when it feels meaningless? And I want you to read with me. I'm going to skip around here, but the, the verses I want to read are verse 1 and verse 4. So I'll just go ahead and read, and we'll, we'll get into it. It says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Verse four, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that uh, you would speak to us and through us by your Holy Spirit. You're, uh, Jesus, you it was said of you by your disciples that you alone have the words of eternal life. And we just pray that your words, your word, would speak to us eternal life. And I'm over here just putting my words together the best that I can to explain your words, but make no mistake, let us make no mistake, you alone have the words of eternal life. So I just pray that I wouldn't be in the way today. I pray that I would be sensitive to your spirit, and to what people are going through today. But most of all, I just pray that people would be able to, to hear through me, but even past me, hear the, the whisperings of your Holy Spirit. Who You are so kind to speak to people right where they're at. You've done that so many times, and I just pray that, God, you would just do that today. Just speak to people through your word, through the examples of Scripture. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's also a time to be happy and to dance, apparently, Ecclesiastes says. I hope you get a lot of dancing in in your spirituality. It's biblical. There's also a time to mourn and a time to stop and weep. Weeping and mourning and grief are a direct result of this thing that we call loss. When things, uh, when there's an experience of loss and everybody in this room experiences loss and we will experience loss. Now for some, that loss is unimaginable and catastrophic. I'm talking about things like death and violence, terminal illness and deep betrayal of friendships or even family talking about abuse of all different sorts, and the, the list is endless. I, I think you, you can probably fill in some of those gaps yourself. Injustices. Loss can be catastrophic and almost otherworldly, unbearable. For others, and probably for most of us, it involves not the catastrophic, but the, the natural order of things, the loss of our youthfulness, the loss of... Uh, uh, everything from our hair to our backs, our ability to lift things, uh, things just start changing and we realize that we're not the same that we used to be. We are losing our youth and that's hard. Uh, it's things like unrealized dreams. You may find yourself today uh, in a place in your career where you, you didn't think you would be at this point in your career and it's maybe not a good thing for you. There are other losses like the termination of a job where you are ejected from something that you, you really enjoyed and thought you were going to have for a while. There are other natural losses that aren't necessarily bad. They're actually good. Like when your kid grows up and moves to college and you're happy for them. But there's also this other sense in which your home is empty. You're like, ah. Oh. There's also maybe not just like a, a loss of a job, but a, an opportunity for a better job. You find yourself moving out of the city that you love to another place and leaving friends and family and an environment that you're used to. And while you have this great opportunity ahead of you and you're excited, there's also this, this sense of loss because every time there's change, there really is a loss that follows, and that's okay. For some people, there's catastrophic loss, and for others, there's just natural and normal loss. But for the person going through that loss, it doesn't matter what other people are going through, right? It's your loss, and it's painful, wherever you are and whatever you're going through at that moment. I don't know if you find this when you go through stuff like this, but we've, it often feels like, at least for me, that I can't control almost anything that I'm going through. I certainly can't control most of my circumstances. But I hope that what you're able to find in the scriptures today is that even though you can't control loss most of the time, you can't control the circumstances, you can't control your environment, and you can't control other people, you can learn to control the way that you process 
your emotion and your feelings in those seasons of loss and even, maybe even eventually, manage those emotions in a healthy way in the midst of loss, even in a way that perhaps will bring you closer to God in a way that you've never even experienced before. I'm convinced of that in the scriptures. I'm just gonna lay it out for you, for you to do what you want with in this season of your life. But it starts with a common problem. Everybody in this room will experience loss. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. How we process the feelings that we have that come along with loss is a completely different story. And for a lot of people, we have been trained to process and manage emotions in a particular way. This has been kind of the the thing we've been harping on week after week, right? For a lot of people, we've been trained to uh, embrace the good emotions and to reject the bad emotions. I don't actually believe that there's good or bad emotions. I think emotions are immoral, amoral, not immoral. They're just there. Uh, They're true. They're neither good or bad. But uh, we might be able to describe some as pleasant, right? And some as unpleasant. I want you to uh, do this yourself. I don't want to put words or ideas in your mind or experiences in your, on your plate. I want you to do this yourself. I, w- I want to give you a few seconds, probably like 30 seconds, to think about this yourself. When you were growing up and something really difficult or bad happened in your life or in the life of your family, loss, whether catastrophic or you know, medium, whatever you want to describe it, what, what was kind of the the knee-jerk reaction to that loss in your family. Just think about that for like half a minute. Maybe for some of you, it's a great response. Maybe you handled grief well, maybe, but maybe for others in the room, it was some form of suppression. And that could, that could take all sorts of different forms, right? And here's a list of some. Maybe these can jog your memory if they resonate with you. Denial is a way that we suppress grief. We pretend that we're not actually sad or that the thing that happened didn't actually happen. Uh, We minimize the situation or the grief. Uh, For example, I I know I'm in a, I know my partner is violent towards me, maybe even to my family, but you know, I shouldn't complain. Like they all, they, they take me on vacations, they bring the bacon home. Uh, so there's, there's hard things, but there's also good things. I don't have it as bad as some other people, minimizing. Uh, blaming others is another way that we deal with grief in an unhealthy way. We're dealing with something, but we, we lash out 
or, or blame others for, uh, for things that are happening. Another way is blaming ourselves. Well, this is happening. I deserve it. I, I did all of these things. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bad spouse. I'm a bad child. We rationalize. We come up with reasons for why certain things are happening in order to maybe justify it in our own mind. Well, if I just... If I just stayed at home just for 30 minutes earlier uh, or just lounged at that one stoplight, this event wouldn't have happened. If I was a better this or if I was more patient or if I did that, you know, we're rationalizing. We also intellectualize is another way. Another, another form of suppressing our grief is by distraction. We get busy. Instead of thinking about the things that have happened, and dealing with them, we just crowd our schedules and crowd our life with stuff to do. Or people could be social. We're just, just people all the time around us. Another way is by medicating. This is a big one. Instead of grieving, we medicate and dumb down our feelings. Another way we suppress grief is just by becoming hostile. We turn inward in the worst way possible and allow that bitterness to fester and we lash out at everybody around us. These might uh, resonate with you, they might not. You might have a completely different list of ways that you do it, but hopefully it just gets you thinking. This is a way that some people deal with grief. And this is really just suppressing an element of our heart. We're suppressing emotions. And we've been talking for weeks about how the full range of human emotion is actually ordained by God and designed to be a part of who you are. Not just the pleasant emotions, not just happiness and celebration and euphoria and you know, all of that stuff, but also grief. We have a God who grieves over brokenness and he created human beings who could grieve and should grieve over brokenness. And all of the things that come along with that, even anger, there's a righteous indignation that we are told about. And to suppress some of those because they feel unpleasant or they make us anxious or we don't know what to do with them is really to suppress a part of your humanity. To cut off part of your soul from the presence of God in a very real and deep way because that's how God made you to process certain things. You were made to feel the full range of human emotion, including grief. And because you were made to experience things like grief, it's not going to go away. And some of us maybe are dealing with that in a very difficult manner. It doesn't go away, so we have to figure out a way to deal with it. We don't want to deal with it at face value, so we medicate. We uh, maybe use drugs or alcohol, pornography, uh, the unacceptable sins, right? But there's also ex- soci- uh, uh, acceptable ones in society like being busy, uh, becoming workaholics, uh, medicating on all different ver- uh, ways of dealing with some of those unpleasant emotions. And then if you uh, go to a church or you're a Christian, you can actually add a, another convoluted layer to that by adding a a spiritual veneer to your suppression of grief. So not only are you uh, suppressing this God-given emotion, but now you're adding to it 
things from the scriptures that aren't there. So for example, Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I just lost everything, but whatever, rejoice in the Lord always. Or for, you know, First Thessalonians five eighteen, give thanks to the Lord in every, uh, uh, at all times. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, uh, God works all things together for the good of the There's so many passages we can use to try to manipulate the way that we feel. The problem with those is that we ignore the nuance and the seasons by which those passages were written. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to rejoice. Yes, that. But there's also a time to mourn. And there's also a time to weep. And you can cross those wires and actually do the wrong one at the wrong time. In fact, I love uh, Proverbs chapter 27, uh, verse 14, which says this. Got to turn there, sorry. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 14, listen to this. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. I want to frame that over my bed in the morning so that I could sleep in every once in a while. But isn't that the truth? When you're going through something difficult and somebody just tries to like get you out of it, like, God is good. You're like, shut up. God is good, but you are not. There's seasons for everything. And the biblical authors know this, this, this seasonal uh, thing and this nuance that, that comes with the, the, the rhythms of the heart. And we can suppress certain emotions and advance and elevate others. And even uh, when we attach scriptures to that, we're actually associating that with God. And perhaps maybe you even feel that way. I get this frequently, especially as we've been going through the series, Messy Church, I just don't feel okay in church to not be okay. I don't feel safe to not be okay. I feel like I have to be on all the time, happy. This should be the last place that we say something like that or feel that way, but that is how people feel. We have to have all the positive emotions when we're around you know, the church because grief is not of God. I beg to differ. That if you suppress grief and, and your reaction and emotions and feelings that come with loss, you're actually closing off an entire area of God that he meets with us in, in a profound way that I want to argue from the scriptures occurs in no other way. What we do when we kind of push the negative emotions down is not the way of Jesus. It's closer to like Greek, the Greek Stoics. We just stiff upper lip and just passionless, just kind of pushing forward and uh, trying to put a face on. It is not the way of Jesus. What we see in the Bible is a completely different, honest picture of grief, suffering, trials, and loss. And it's explicitly stated. Uh, for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter three, there are times to mourn and to grieve. 
And we see this more often than explicitly stated. We see it lived out by every variety of biblical character from beginning to end. We see characters in the Bible venting honestly about their losses. Think about the Psalms, whole books that are designed to lament. And we are told, we we, we know from history that the Psalms were actually the prayer book and the worship manual of of the people of God in that day. This is how they related to God and worshiped Him in the temple. It wasn't always celebration and singing, it was also sometimes grieving and lamenting and crying. What what seems to us sometimes like complaining. And they get pretty. They get pretty raw. And we see it individually with people like Jeremiah, the weeping, uh, the weeping prophet, who had this vocation and this calling from God to preach. Uh, to Israel and to Judah, and they didn't listen to him. And in Jeremiah 12, he just rants to God. He offers a complaint. He's actually the author of, I don't know if you know, there's a book called Lamentations. A whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. I know we don't use that word a lot, but it would be like calling a book of the Bible the complaint. What if we had a song that we sang, like in the first set of worship, just called The Complaint, and we just like poured out our grief to God, you know? How uncomfortable would some of us be with that? You're like, okay, where's it? when are we going to praise, you know? <laughs> when I lift my hands right now. That should show us how uncomfortable we are in our triumphalist society with unpleasant emotions, and truly how ripped off we get, because this is not how God designed the human heart to work. He designed it to be honest and real and vulnerable and raw. We see it with David, and gosh, you could go for hours on on David. He wrote entire uh, songs lamenting uh, the death of his best friend, Jonathan, and Jonathan's father, Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill him. He uh, tore his clothes and, and, and screamed, cried from the top of his lungs when his son, uh, son Absalom was, was killed. Even in little relational things, like uh, we're told that two people, one, his son Absalom, uh, would eventually betray his, his trust and try to take his kingdom from him. We see the same thing with a guy named uh, Ahithophel, I think is his name, uh, one of his closest friends and, and counselors who betrays him, takes his secrets, and uses it against him uh, in the enemy's camp. We're never told in the story David's response to either of those, but later in Psalm 55, we get maybe a little glimpse into David's heart. Listen to this. For those of you that have ever felt betrayed by a friend, this might be your psalm. It starts off with the typical... David, just emotional roller coaster, like in verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Verse 9 Destroy, O Lord, their tongues, their, you know, the violence they speak against me. I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and they spread iniquity and ruin and oppression and fraud. Oh, wow, he's got some bad enemies, right? But then in verse 12, it's not an enemy who taunts me, for then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, 
a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house when we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. <laughs> Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is their dwelling place and in their heart. Whoa, David, calm down. This is in the Bible. It's grieving. Job, speak about catastrophic loss, lost his family, lost his health, lost all of his stuff in what looks like, I don't know how long it took, but it looks like a couple of weeks. His friends blame him, his wife mocks him, and he's left in a heap of ashes. And from chapter three to chapter 31, he pours out his complaint and his grief to God. We even see it in uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in John chapter 20, verse 11, when he dies. She's probably more in tune with the plan of God than anybody, it seems like. And yet she weeps, obviously, over her, her dying son. And of course, we see it in Jesus, who in John 11, verse 35, weeps over his best friend's death, even though we all know, and he knows, he's gonna fix the problem. Jesus stops to grieve. He doesn't just grieve over his own loss. He grieves uh, in Luke 19.41 when all of Jerusalem uh, rejects him. There's a season for everything, a time to weep and a time to mourn. We don't just see uh, the Bible tell us to mourn. We also see the Bible tell us, Romans 12.15, to mourn with others, to weep with those who weep. And we see characters in the Bible doing that all over the place. Psalm 35, verse 13 through 14. But I, when they, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. Job chapter 30, verse 25. Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? And yet for the people of God, we're also shown that we don't grieve in the same way that everybody else grieves. Paul would say to the Thessalonian church, you don't grieve as others grieve who have no hope. And then he would go on to expound that even though we are suffering in this life, there's coming a day when Jesus will turn off the suffering. When he will abolish that final enemy that is death and everything that pours out of it, the stench and the reek of death that comes in suffering, everything from sickness to, uh, uh, to disillusionment to identity crises to death itself. And yet we are in the midst of all of those things and so we mourn, but we mourn knowing that not only is the suffering not God's design, but it will end one day. And we see this in biblical characters all throughout the Bible. These, these people of God who are grieving in honesty and all the rawness that it, that it entails, and yet they're doing it with this, this sense that, that, that they, they're still trusting in God. They're somehow entrusting themselves to God as they're grieving. We see glimpses of this in Joseph who speak about catastrophic loss. His brothers tried to kill him and when that didn't work, they sold him into slavery. That'll leave some scars. And at the end of his day, after what is probably about 11 or 12 years 
in deep, hard places with his God. Joseph, the immature brother who bragged about his dreams at one point, is now able to say in in Genesis 50 verse 20 to his brothers when he's in power and in control, what you did for evil, God actually meant. He actually turned around for the salvation of all of these people, for you and even for me. We see it in Mary, who not just the catastrophic loss of losing her son, but even in the natural loss that comes from uh, some of her early experiences, try to put yourself in her shoes. You're living your life, got your dreams ahead of you, married this handsome carpenter, and all of a sudden, you get pregnant. In a society that stigmatizes you and will maybe even kill you for it. And your alibi is God did it. Loss. Moving to Egypt, packing their bags, all of the change that comes uh, with some of these things. And yet we're told in Luke chapter 2 verse 19, do this to me, Lord. Let your will be done to me. Do as you see fit. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 19, it's said of Mary that she treasured all of these things, pondering them in her heart. It's beautiful. David, who was betrayed by his friends, later in that Psalm 55, after his lament, would later say things like, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. He will never allow his righteous one's foot to slip. And even in Job, after 30 chapters of just letting people have it, letting God have it, he'd still say in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, I'll still in my flesh see God. We see grieving with this underlying sense of trust and longing for God. I think if we were to look at just a a glimpse of, of this, this overarching narrative in Scripture, we have, to recorrect, we have to correct that faulty narrative in society that is, has taught us to suppress grief and loss. And to see that if we were to be honest with the Scriptures, if we were to be honest with the way that we have been made, that, we, uh, that grieving loss is a part of being human and it is the right response to loss. And as Christians, we grieve with the Lord. Now, when loss is not natural and normal, when it's catastrophic and unbearable, this is easier said and taught than done. Some of you have gone through unspeakable horrors. In the fall of 1991, a man by the name of Jerry Sitzer, a religious professor, and his wife, Linda, along with his mother and their four children, ranging from ages uh, two to eight, were driving in their little minivan on a lonely stretch of highway in rural Idaho. They had been visiting this nearby Native American Indian reservation as a school project for their two oldest children. Ten minutes into their drive home, Sitzer noticed a car traveling towards them extremely fast. The driver was drunk. Sitzer slowed down uh, at a curve, but the oncoming car, traveling at 85 miles an hour, crashed headlong into their minivan, 
killing his mother, Grace, his wife of 20 years, Linda, and his four-year-old daughter, Diane. In one moment, three generations of women were gone. Jerry sat on that lonely highway watching them die in his arms. The driver of the other car was eventually declared not guilty and set free because it could not be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he and not his pregnant wife who had died in the accident had been driving the vehicle. This would force Jerry to plummet into an abyss. At first, he writes that he would deny it in all of the ways that we underlined and try to suppress it in every way imaginable before eventually coming to this place where he realized the only way out is to go straight into my grief. Three years later, he he wrote about it, about an unbearable but transformative journey uh, in this book called A Grace Disguised. And I just want to read you a a lengthy passage, but a, a helpful one. He says this, he says, catastrophic loss leaves the landscape of one's life forever changed. I question whether experiences of uh, such severe loss can be quantified and compared. Loss is loss, whatever the circumstances. All losses are bad, only bad in different ways. No two losses are ever the same. Each loss stands on its own and inflicts a unique kind of pain. What I have discovered is that in that moment that I had the power to choose the direction my life would head, I had the power to choose the direction my life would head, even if the only choice open to me, at least initially, was either to run from the loss or to face it as best as I could. I also discovered that the soul is elastic, like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. Loss can enlarge its capacity for anger and depression, and despair, and anguish. All natural and legitimate emotions when we experience loss. But once the soul is enlarged, the soul is also capable of experiencing greater joy, strength, peace, and love. The decision to face the darkness, even if it led to overwhelming pain, showed me that the experience of loss itself does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to loss. It's not what happens to us that matters as much as what happens in us. Darkness, it's true, had invaded my soul, but then again, so did light. Both contributed to my personal transformation. This idea that grieving with God can actually enlarge your soul, unlike any other thing we see throughout the Bible, it was Paul who said, as unbearable and as awful and as evil as suffering can sometimes be, it has this ability to create a chain reaction by the grace and mercy of God to open our hearts, Romans chapter five, verse three through five, so that our capacity to, uh, to, uh, to receive his love is grown even more. We can experience God's love in the midst of difficulty, grief, and trial in ways that we could never experience it in any other way, in affluence and comfort and security. We see this very thing happening in the life of Job, who actually had a good relationship with God before all of that stuff went down. 
It was said that he was one of the most blameless guys in the world. He walked with God. He had righteousness. And yet it was through that trial and suffering, through his grief and wrestling with God and his visitation with God that he was able to say at the end of all of that in Job 42 verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. We're faced with the sometimes cruel reality of suffering in a fallen world. But we're also shown that it doesn't have to be the end of our story. That we live with a God who is redemptive and can turn even the darkest things into light. And light can invade your darkness. But we first must learn how to grieve the darkness. Might be asking, how do we even start? And I think it's just the simple process that we've been uncovering week in and week out. Listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. Yeah, well, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful, and who can know it? Yeah, but right after that, it also says that the Lord knows the heart and can discern the rhythms of it. Listen to your heart in the presence of God. What is it saying? Not that everything that your heart is saying is right, but it is accurate, usually. And God often uses that element of our heart to get our attention so that he can speak. Listen to your heart. And if what you find, too, in your heart is grief, face the grief for what it is in your own timing. Not my timing, not other people's timing, but in your own with the Lord Listen to your heart and face the grief for what it is. This might involve lamenting. Most of the Psalms are not praise and celebration, they are laments. And most of the laments will have a little upward tick at the end, they seem to, where the psalmist will remember the goodness and faithfulness of God and they'll cling to him, but there's a couple that don't. And they're pretty brutal. Read Psalm 88. There's no upward tick. It's just a complaint. Not only is grieving human, but it also, according to the psalm writers, is worship. God likes, he receives it as worship. If, what we, uh, if the psalms are the worship book of Israel, he receives our laments as raw, unadulterated worship. He wants real hearts, not fake ones. And part of that involves grief. Once you face the grief, there's a period where we might just have to wait in the mystery. This might be that dark night of the soul we were talking about. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, writes about the Psalms that they can be divided into three types. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. In other words, the first batch of Psalms are songs about orientation. They orient us to the goodness of God where we are able to enjoy God and his creation and his blessings and delight in his goodness and enjoy a rich sense of well-being and joy in him, right? Psalm 16 or 19, I think it is. The heavens are declaring the glory of God and you're reciting to that, uh, that as you're just getting so pitted under a wave. But then he goes on and says this, the second batch of psalms are songs of disorientation. 
seasons of hurt and suffering and dislocation, written when the bottom falls out and we wonder what's happening to us. This is the confusing in-between when we so often feel doubts, resentment, isolation, and despair. Maybe some of you are in a season of disorientation right now. And the Psalms are telling you that it's okay to feel that fully. Don't try to take yourself out of that season. Let God do it for you. Just wait in the mysterious in-between. The third batch of Psalms Brueggemann calls reorientation when God breaks in and does something new in the middle of your pain. This is when joy breaks through our despair and God turns ashes into beauty. At that point, we should embrace God's work in us over time and not let loss and grief turn us into bitter, darkened individuals. Some of you at this point are maybe wrestling with that because you're asking the question all of us have asked when we've encountered loss. Why if, did God let this happen? If he's good and, is he lo- and he's loving, why did he let this thing happen to me? And I think there's a bunch of proof texts and, uh, and verses we can all pull out and apply to, to things like that. If you've ever encountered deep loss, you know and understand that in the middle of that loss, none of those things seem to satisfy your longing to the question that you're asking. So I want to spare you of that today too. The truth is, sometimes I don't know. I can point to general things that I see in the Bible. We live in a fallen world and the devil, and that's about it. But in that moment... When you're confronted with the cruelty and the brutality of life, sometimes it just feels like spiritual platitudes that are meaningless and hold no water. And so the Bible doesn't always seem to answer the why questions as satisfactorily as we would like. But here's what it does teach us. It teaches us something that has brought me through my seasons And according to the things I've heard from some of you, brought some of you through your seasons, that even though we might not ever know why we are going through the things that we are going through, God, we see in Scripture, grieves, uh, excuse me, God also suffers and grieves with us and for us in the midst of our loss. That he is not disconnected, but so grieved is he over loss that he actually entered into our suffering to suffer with us. This is the story of the gospel. When Jesus, full of privilege and power and divine right because he is God, took on flesh, took on our limitations as a human being, entered into our mess, enters into our messy church in order to take on that mess. He goes through our suffering. He empathizes with the things that we go through. The uh, the author in Hebrews tells us that uh, we have a high priest who knows what we go through because he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, he having uh, uh, gone through some of those things himself. He enters into our world fully self-aware of his own human limitations. 
He pulls away from his family scripts and expectations on him in order to pursue fully the will of his father. And so deeply and profoundly and powerfully does he pursue the will of the father even when it's difficult that he is plunged into a dark night of his own soul in the garden when he's sweating blood out of stress and asking the father, if there's any other way, please take this cup. And yet he's still entrusting himself to God. Not my will, but yours be done. When we see the apex of his dark night of the soul on the cross, when in one fell swoop he says to his father, a quote from Psalm, uh, I believe, 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe that the father forsakes or abandons, but I do believe the, the feeling that uh, Jesus is, is retrieving from the Psalms, where are you, feels like that. And yet we're told that Jesus pushes through all of this grief, all of this pain, the torture, the upheaval, the burden for the joy that is set before him. And the God of the universe steps down and meets us in our grief, not outside of it. Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff lost his 25-year-old son to a mountain climbing accident. In his book, Lament for a Son, he wrestles with the fact that he's got no explanations for why God would have allowed that tragedy to happen. And at one point, comes up with a profound insight. He says this, Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It is said of God that no one can see his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one can see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps this meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. When we see Jesus, we see something quite profound in God. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he takes a moment to stop and cry. Before God does the miraculous, the world was in awe of a God who cried. Before Jesus offered solutions, which he was fully capable of offering and accomplishing, he stops and cries. Maybe what the world needs today is a church that can cry to be real about loss and disappointment and suffering and injustice. But not out of motivation that's steeped in bitterness, but of hope. That this injustice, this loss, this violence, this discouragement, this bad thing is not how things are supposed to be. Therefore, I sit with you in this grief and I say nothing. We might not never, never know in this life why we are going through the things that we're going through. And we might not ever be the same after having gone through something quite traumatic and catastrophic, but this we can know. God can be with us in it and he can even enlarge our capacity to keep living if we'll let him. Our trials don't have to be a waste. Listen to your heart. Face your grief. Wait in the mystery and embrace what God has you. This could take years. It's not gonna be overnight. 
None of us are going to do it perfectly. But that's okay. God will walk through us in those seasons of grief if we let him. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now in a time of song, just want to ask, Lord, that uh, you would gather all of us together that way that you do with uh, attention to us as a, as a group, as a community, but also individually. And I'm pretty sure that in this room there's people going through very difficult things. And maybe they're, they're just being flooded right now just revisiting some of those things. There's probably also people in this room who are, who are in a season of celebration and dance and joy. I just pray, God, that you would just meet every one of these people, brothers and sisters, right where they're at. Wherever they're at, I pray that their emotions would be able to be real. Celebration for real and honest joy, but also grief. And I pray that at the end of the day, we wouldn't weep and cry just to weep and cry, and we wouldn't celebrate to put on a face, but that wherever we find ourselves, it would just be honest. So I pray for our church today that you would make us honest, and that in doing so, you would restore that beautiful image of God and humanity that you saw from the beginning, to feel the full range of human emotion, and yet to cling to you and not to them. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Carpets at the front. If you want to worship God in in a place of semi-solitude, there's sacraments to the right and to the left of the bread and the cup. You can lift up the, the symbol of Christ's body and his blood and remind yourself of what Jesus has done to restore you to the Father. There's prayer teams to the right and to the left. Just upstairs on the mezzanine, you can look for that lanyard. If there's anything you need prayer for, I'd love to serve you in that way. But let's just sit in this moment and allow our song to kind of pull our heart forward as we're processing some of this stuff. Let's cry out to our God who is here and present wherever you happen to be in life.